You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 28th of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. In respect of Dame Margaret Beckett's motion M, confirmatory public vote, the ayes were 268, yes. the noes were 295. Yes. So the noes have it. What fresh hell is this? Part umpty million in an apparently infinite series. My guests Michael Goldfarb and Jonathan Fenby will be discussing Brexit and the day's other top stories, including President Emmanuel Macron's ambitions for reforming France's civil service, about which France's civil service is as enthused as might be expected. Russia admits it has sent soldiers to Venezuela, but insists that they won't be doing any actual soldier stuff. And has a Russian polar bear called Ukraine's election? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the journalist and broadcaster Michael Goldfarb and Jonathan Fenby, chairman of China Research and director of European political research at TS Lombard, also author most recently of Crucible on the making of our world after the Second World War. Welcome both. And we will begin at the risk of provoking screaming fits from listeners, guests and presenter alike with Brexit. There was a time either as recently as last month or as long ago as the dinosaurs. It's getting hard to tell when it was thought that as of of right now, the UK would be a little over 24 hours from leaving the European Union. After yet another week, even more bizarre than the previous week, this date has now been officially delayed to the 12th of April or the 22nd of May or the 11th of October. This follows last night's glorious fiasco in the House of Commons in which MPs were offered the chance to endorse eight different varieties of Brexit and chose none of them. And this followed the attempted resignation of Prime Minister Theresa May, who may yet enter political immortality as the first leader ever to have tried to fall on their own sword and missed. Um, Michael, first of all, is there really any point at this stage at the risk of preempting the next few minutes of discussion of pretending that we understand at all what's now going on? No, we don't. Un- well, we know what will happen tomorrow. Sort of. Do we? Um, there, there <laughs> in, in order- you do. That's a, a bold claim from Michael in, in, Well, no, there, there will be a vote tomorrow on you know, the, this famous, uh, what is it called, MV something or other, meaningful, meaningful vote. vote for a withdrawal agreement. As opposed to unmeaningful the, vote. The word meaningful starting to do a lot of work there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, the, the Speaker of the House, John Burko, had said, well, you know, you can't keep bringing this back because you're going to because you lose. It wastes time. And there's a parliamentary precedent going back to 1604. Jonathan, who wasn't there then, but almost, <laughs> will, will remind me if it wasn't 1604, it might have been 1603. Anyway, um, so what they've done is they've completely rewritten a motion in which the, How- the House of Commons will now vote only on the withdrawal agreement, not the political um, declaration, which is part of the overall package. And this is meant to, in some ways, substantially make it a different deal. Um, She's still going to lose because what's happened is her government is propped up by these 10 uh, members of parliament from the Democratic Unionist Party, a really hardline party in Northern Ireland. She's already bribed that party with a billion quid. Makes no difference. Um, They are 
some of the most disloyal, disreputable people. And I, <laughs> I met them back in the day when I used to cover Northern Ireland when there was still a conflict there. They're just awful people, and, and they will not <laughs> vote for her no matter what. This gives, this gives uh, courage to the, those in the ERG, the European Research Group, Tory backbenchers, not to vote for it. And, of course, then there'll be Labour who are trying to just completely bring down the government anyway yep. and get a longer extension of Article 50, have a, a, a completely new election and enter the socialist Valhalla that Jeremy Corbyn's premiership will represent. And we'll be talking about that every day on this program for the next 10 years. <laughs> so God knows. They want to bring down the government, but not in taking responsibility for a bad Brexit themselves. Exactly. Which seems less and less... <laughs> A viable uh, opportunity. Jonathan, to return briefly to what I think we're calling MV3, you, you, you have, of course, a, a distinguished career as a newspaper editor. You may well be, therefore, familiar with the tactic of representing the same heap Indeed. of garbage several times over with the fourth paragraph swap for the fifth and hope that this time you get it past the editor. Um, are you buying on this occasion, or, or are, are we... To extend the metaphor further, is at this point the I, I forget how this was going to go, but at some point you were going to be end up throwing a teacup at some hapless hack <laughs> as they scamper yeah. for the staircase. Well, I think Andrew, I mean, as you say, it's very dangerous to predict anything. We're in such a chaotic uh, situation, but I think the kind of if you might phrase it so, the anti Theresa May feeling is so enormous that this is going to uh, dominate everything and therefore rejection uh, for a third time is most likely and the problem is that as it always has been throughout this whole process for the last months, year or so on is that this is all bound up with the internal fighting in the Conservative Party it, it is which a, now it, takes priority. It is a genuinely st sobering yet staggering thing to sit back every so often and contemplate that literally all of this is happening because Boris Johnson wants to be Prime Minister. Yes, but you know something? It's been happening since... 1990, yeah. when Margaret well, Thatcher well, was indeed. forced... Well, the, indeed. The, uh, the last three or four years, though, that is basically what it comes down and to. And I did have a similar yeah. thought, you know, because um, yesterday when Theresa May announced, after meeting with the 1922 backbench committee of uh, conservative parliamentarians, um, that she would step aside once the deal was voted for, pass my deal, I will resign. I mean... Immediately, the press came out with runners and riders and odds on who and what. And, you know, and it's the same people exactly. who three years ago had the same odds on them. And, you know, Michael Gove <laughs> knifed Boris Johnson and Andrea Letson couldn't command, who's the other, another uh, conservative party uh, MP, wanted the job, couldn't get the job. And they ended up landing, it ended up landing on Theresa May's desk. And here we are, three years of later, and it's the same bloody people. Yeah, but Michael is right in saying this goes back a very, very long way. I mean, at least to John Major, uh, 40 years or so. And I think this whole inability of the leadership to deal with the European question and the internal rivalries within the Conservative Party have been one of the most destructive elements in British politics over that long period. Uh, we will move on because there will be doubtless, well, partly because none of us have got a clue what's going on anymore, but also, also because there will be you know, ample further opportunity to discuss this. Just before we do, uh, up until today, I've been asking Midori House guests at the end of every such discussion whether the UK would be in or out of the EU come 2300 on March 29th. Now, we do 
now know the answer to that question. Everybody who said no was right. The ones who said yes, we will, were wrong. I'm going to start asking a slightly different question, which I'd like you both to answer in turn. You first, Jonathan, as briskly as you possibly can. Brexit, is it ever actually going to happen? Yes. I wish it were not, but I think it is. Uh, and you can see from the voting last night uh, for the, the Ken Clark motion on the customs union, it'll probably be a very, very soft Brexit, which, as they say, may be Bruno Brexit in name only. Michael? I'm inclined to agree with Jonathan. Um, yes, but I don't think it will happen even by May 22nd. I, I, I think they're going to have to find a way to keep Britain from having an election of MEPs and then extended for a full year um, till they can figure out how to get Ken Clark's soft Brexit organized. Yeah. Well, that's that's all well worth staying alive for, I think we, we can agree. Uh, let, let's Possibly with another referendum. I mean, that's the thing. You could, have a, the, you could have the withdrawal, you could have the customs union, and then you could have another referendum. This can go on uh, for as long as I'm alive, certainly. Let's look now at France, um, the president of which, Emmanuel Macron, was elected on a promise of making substantial modernising reforms to various ossified elements of French politics and business. So far, at least, his thanks for this has come principally in the form of legions of purple-faced men in yellow vests flinging paving stones at gendarmes, but Macron seems determined to continue. Next in his sights are France's civil servants, of whom Macron thinks there should be perhaps 120,000 fewer, and that the roughly four three million who would be left should work rather harder for their taxpayer-funded salaries. Um, Jonathan, first of all, uh, beating up on the civil service is a... I mean, democratically elected politicians do this all the time. It rarely goes over entirely badly. Are France's civil servants really any more or less idle and inefficient than anybody else's? I would say, broad brush, no. Um, but, uh, for instance, there was a, a leaked survey in the Figaro uh, this week which showed that 300,000 work less than 35 hours a week and quite a lot of them considerably less. There are all kinds of perks on the side and when so on. When we say on. working 35 hours a week, we yeah. are, of course, they are in their places. They're, sorry, they're, in their, they're, hours they're at their desks or wherever. <laughs> yes, 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 who knows what they're doing. But, uh, for instance, at the Culture Ministry, uh, they still have several weeks' holiday uh, a year in homage to André Malraux, the girl's uh, <laughs> culture minister who died quite a few decades ago. It's so, man's fate, Jonathan. So there is, a, it is indeed, oh, the literary reference. Um, so, uh, yeah, there is a lot to do in cleaning up, uh, but um, as Macron may have bitten off another quite difficult um, uh, reform to chew. Uh, Michael, seven trade unions, unsurprisingly, are calling for a day of strikes on May the 9th. So if they can find anything in Paris which has not already been smashed or set fire to, that's doubtless where they will be heading. Um, is, is Macron... I mean, you know, if, if, if that's the most predictable outcome that you could possibly imagine to anything, a French president saying, I'm going to reform the civil service, there will therefore be massive demonstrations. So if we figured that out, I'm sure Macron has figured that out. Is, is he picking this fight on purpose? My guess is he probably is. And, and May, is, May, along with October, tend to be the, 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 annual, the months of Le Manif, the manifestations, the strikes, because May, they get a May Day holiday anyway. The weather's nice. It's, yep. it's very pleasant, very pleasant. You know, I don't know. I, I really don't. I mean, the civil service is, is, I think, from country to country. People have the same view. In, in times when all forms of employment 
are incredibly unstable. People look at the civil servants and say, you know, you've got it pretty good. You're not, you're not sure. going to get fired. And it might be the time to try. I mean, other, other people have tried. Another thing that, that is of interest is that for all the, the problems we've been reading about Gilets jaunes and, you know, trashing Paris as a spectator sport every Saturday, um, the French economy is doing actually surprisingly well. Um, it's grown at a larger clip. I think it was 1.6% was the, in, in today's Financial Times. There was an article about about this uh, taking on the civil service and um, 1.6% when it wasn't expected to grow that much this year. Um, inflation is low and tax receipts are up. Um, I mean, if you're not going to if you're not going to give it a go now, when well, would you give it a go? Yeah, and also I think Macron, who was elected, I mean, I, I followed the, the election campaign there, and there was undoubtedly, without being naive, uh, starry-eyed about it, uh, <coughs> I think quite a broad feeling of it is time for reform uh, in France. And he pushed through this with the railways, with the SCNCF, which is a civil service job, uh, basically, in many ways. And clearly now he wants to keep up the momentum and the people around him think regard that as being extremely important. They've got to keep up the five-year momentum during his first term in order to lead on to a second term when, as usual, they say, the real dividends will show. Uh, just to follow that up, though, Jonathan, and given what Michael was saying about how there is something that does now seem, I think, quite privileged about a, a civil yeah. service career, that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's reliable employment, it pays tolerably well, um, as we've been learning, quite quite reasonable conditions. Uh, is it possible that Macron's making just a basic political calculation here and just thinking this is probably a good way to at least get some of the angry people in high-vis vests back on board? Because it's not likely that they're going to be terribly upset by this, is it? Well, it depends which civil servants you attack, whether you're attacking the low-paid civil servants or... The, 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 the fat cats who um, have got uh, excessive holidays and so on. If it's the second, yes, the answer is yes to, you know, targeting uh, public anger at then. But what he's also got um, to deal with is this respect for the state, l'état, in France, which is very important and which is represented by the civil service. And you've had on French television uh, over recent months endless reports from the provinces about uh, schools, local offices, health centres, etc., etc. All these elements of the state being closed down. Um, and that uh, arouses quite a lot of anger among exactly the people behind the Gilets jaunes. Uh, Michael, do we perceive any indications at all that uh, the French are warming to Macron in the slightest? Because the, the enthusiasm for him has it's always been slightly conditional. I mean, lest we forget that he won an election because he was up against a, a you know a, a thoroughly obnoxious candidate in in in, in the second round, uh, Marine Le Pen from the Front National. Uh, he, his his approval ratings have not quite plummeted to the um, abysmal single digits of Francois Hollande. But is there, is there any sign at all that he's, he's winning France over? Do you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I have a feeling these last few weeks, you know, the, the Gilets jaunes thing happened, it's still going on. And I think they were, everybody was caught off guard by the fierceness of the demonstrations. And what's happened, I think, is that as they've continued, and clearly there's two kinds of gilets jaunes. They're the guys who come out to destroy 
shops in, in, in Paris and worse, burn out the the guys who sell newspapers and kiosks oh, on the corner of the Champs Elysees. You can't do that to people. You can't do that. And then there, you know, the, the, the people who are genuinely upset about yeah. this increase in fuel duty because it makes making a living impossible. He goes off on this round the the country listening tour. He does, what did he do, Jonathan? It was eight hours? On, yeah, yeah. He did eight hours on French radio, I think, with leading intellectuals, about a hundred of them, and he talked them to death. I mean, this is the sort of thing Tony Blair used to do <laughs> with the press, because I used to go to Blair's press conferences, and after 45 minutes, he would say, got any more questions, guys? And somebody would raise their hand. And after an hour and a half, he said, anybody else? And he would have talked all of Fleet Street to nothingness. Yeah, and it's Macron. the same thing. And I, I think Macron is doing that and, and probably will regain some popularity off the back of that. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Michael Goldfarb and Jonathan Fenby. Coming up next, Russia sends military personnel and equipment to a South American country whose leadership is embargoed by the United States. What could possibly go wrong? Download the free Monocle 24 app today to tune in wherever in the world you happen to be. Whether you're catching up on the news on your daily commute, enjoying a little cultural nourishment during your morning run, or seeking some recipe inspiration around the kitchen table, the Monocle 24 app allows you to tune in live or download your favorite shows to enjoy later. Get started by downloading the Monocle 24 app today. Monocle 24. Keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister. With me are Jonathan Fenby and Michael Goldfarb. In recent years, Russia has often favoured a policy of denial when asked if it has any idea who all these heavily armed blokes called Sergei and Boris are who've turned up in a country other than Russia. So it's at least that refreshing that Moscow has admitted that the several dozen alleged Russian military personnel seen disembarking from Russian military aircraft in Caracas earlier this week are in fact Russian military. Russia has hastened to stress, however, that this deployment is, quote, not linked to the possibility of any military operations, unquote. So, Jonathan, is it linked to the possibility of any military operations? Uh, Not military operations, I think. It's military presence. And you may see there's a fine line uh, between those. I think Putin is uh, wanting to take an opportunity to make trouble, basically, which is something he likes doing very much indeed. Uh, and how Trump and the Trump re, uh, administration will react to that uh, is then the question. But I don't think it's military action. I don't think we're in the, uh, which you alluded to earlier on, the Cuban Missile Crisis quite yet. <laughs> uh, well, on the subject of uh, Trump and Russia, Michael, um, Donald Trump has suggested that, that Russia should get out of Venezuela, to which Russia has just in the last few minutes responded by accusing Trump of, quote, boorishness on a global scale, unquote. I don't know if that's a coded instruction or whether that, that, that or, whether, or whether that's just what they mean. Well, I'm glad that Vladimir Vladimirovich is coming along to the never-Trump way of speaking. Of <laughs> um, you, you know, the, who knows what this sh- what that shadow play is about. I mean, the, the clear sense, and this is a continuation of American policy towards what was first the Chavez regime, is now the Maduro regime, is best if they go. Um, there's no easy way to do it. 
when there are these moments, and as there have been over the last 15 years, I was, I was in Venezuela at the end of one a decade ago, where the people finally said, look, we can't take yeah. this anymore. You know, this is a potentially an extremely rich country with the largest proven oil reserves in the world, as we keep saying every time we talk about it. Um, they want to take advantage of current unrest. In fact, I was just checking. Um, I follow some people via Twitter um, who are in Venezuela, and you know, they're having these rolling blackouts again in the yep. major cities right now. As we speak, it's daytime there, so it doesn't make a difference, except that it's hot. And you can't put on air conditioning because there's no power. And there's this sense that the state has completely is disintegrated except for the ability to use force against the people. Um, I, you know, it, but the U.S. is hamstrung because the people who most would want to be rid of Maduro don't want the U.S. to in, invade. They don't want any violence. They want it to happen through the people. Um, and how you aid and, and, and make that happen, I don't know. And actually, the presence of 100 Russian military advisors, how many is, is the U.S. leaving in Syria at the moment? It's been causing the same kind of headlines. I don't know why we write, I don't know why my colleagues, our colleagues, who, who cover these things full time, make such a big deal over 100 people here, 400 people there. You know what it is? It goes back to the Vietnam War when America had 100 advisors in Vietnam. And then one day they had 10,000 advisors. And before you know it, you had the Vietnam War. You know, 100 advisors, eh. 400 advisors in Idlib, not in Idlib, in, in eastern Syria, eh. You know, these are not things I think that we have to get upset about. Well, this this is true, and as, as you were saying earlier, Jonathan, it's a it, it's a presence. It's it's a flag flying expedition. I mean, that's basically as many people as you need to run a flag up a pole. But <laughs> what what does happen if the hundred becomes two hundred, becomes three hundred, four hundred? What if it's a thousand Russians in Venezuela? At what point does it start to look like Russia might be quite serious about this? I think if you get a build up of the kind you're talking about, and it's steady incremental build-up and we get into the thousands, then uh, Trump, John Bolton, Pompeo and so on have to take this uh, much more seriously. But by, the then, moment, but, but by then the jig's up though, isn't and it? Really? Yeah, 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 it may be too late at that point. And also you've got in this the, the Chinese uh, presence because of course China has been a big, big supporter, was a big supporter of the Chavez uh, regime and is still really invested in backing Maduro uh, and the Venezuelan, uh, his Venezuelan uh, government regime uh, there and indeed has come out in support of the Russian action today on the grounds, typically Chinese, that Venezuela is a sovereign nation which can invite anybody in it wants. Uh, and that's it. Forget about who they are. Uh, now, I don't think China uh, and America want at a time when they're in deep into trade talks that they want to fight over Venezuela. But uh, if it escalated, you could see that. Uh, Michael, it's a question I feel like I've asked about Venezuela even more than I've asked it about Brexit. But do, do you perceive any sense of a, a looming end game here? Do we know how this is going to shake out? Can Maduro just carry on doing this forever? You know, especially running up against, you know, really fundamental stuff like being you know unable to supply power to the people of his capital city the capital city as you also correctly pointed out of what should be an extremely rich and prosperous country i i have this feeling that you know it, and essentially you pose the question in terms of brexit we're just in this moment across the globe nobody wants to fight 
Nobody wants to fight. And nobody wants to break log jams. Nobody wants to do diplomacy. And we're kind of all frozen in a moment of extraordinary tension and anxiety. In the case of Venezuela, I have no doubt that the kind of popular will that kept Chavez secure no longer exists for mm. the Chavez Chavista regime. Maduro isn't as popular. That said, until the army, this is Latin America, until the army comes out of its barracks against him, mm. he is secure. It doesn't, 100 Russian advisors, nothing. The leading generals and colonels, that's all he needs. And at the moment, that's what he's got. And, you know, the president, Guaido, who today, while we're talking, um, th there was some ruling that he can't hold public office for four years. Well, he's the elected president of the country. He can hold office. Um, if, the, if the army won't come out in support yep. of Guaido, then Maduro is secure. It's that simple. Uh, on, just finally and quickly on this subject, Jonathan, on the subject of the alternative president, Guaido, Juan Guaido, yeah. who is who is recognized as such by most of Latin America, Europe and, and the Americas, etc. He is calling for more protests. Is that is that going to do any good or is that basically the only shot in his locker at the moment? It's the only thing he can do, given, as Michael said, that the force is still with Maduro, uh, the, the, the armed force. Uh, he has to do that. He has to keep up pressure and he has to hope that the, the power blackouts, all the, the other privations uh, which are there in Venezuela will sap away support for Maduro bit by bit and the army will wake up one day and say, hey, this guy's a loser, we better get with the winner. Okay, well, finally tonight, and continuing with the subject of possible Russian interference in the domestic affairs of other nations, a winner in this Sunday's presidential election in Ukraine has been tipped by a Russian polar bear named Buyan, currently resident of a zoo in Krasnoyarsk. Invited to choose between three morsels of food attached to the three front runners of Ukraine's presidency, I should specify pictures of the three front runners for Ukraine's presidency, uh, Buyan picked the incumbent, uh, Petro. Poroshenko. Um, I, I'm, I'm very fond of this, Michael, because this is a proper and finally story, and, and I'm, I, it's a genre I'm a big fan of. Is it at all possible that this is a cunning psyops stunt at some level or another? Though I'm, I'm frankly a bit lost looking at Ukraine as to which of the candidates Russia would be shilling for. Probably the, the stand-up comic, don't you think? Yeah. Because well, again, you have the follow-up question, which stand-up comic? No, you, you, you mean I, the professional? The professional stand-up <laughs> You know, Russia certainly doesn't want Yulia Timoshenko, who, who's no. a, a real Ukrainian nationalist. They don't want Petro Poroshenko because they think he's in the pocket of the US. No, I think they want the, the, they want the guy who can crack the jokes. This is I, Vladimir Zelensky. Vladimir Zelensky. Da. You know, wasn't there a World Cup octopus? Yes, yeah, so, yeah, no, well, the World Cup the, octopus. There's a long, long history of this. If yes. you want, I can retail some of the top bits of it. Please, please because the, the bear has World <laughs> Cup form, but it called the, it called the World Cup final wrong yeah. last oh, year. No, but uh, the, the, the bear was among that unhappy band who thought Croatia would pull off the upset. No, Paul, the German octopus, predicted the World Cup outcome right in 2010. 
uh, it went for Spain. But also my research it tells me... wasn't a controversial me, choice, in fairness. Yeah, it tells me that a Chinese monkey forecast Trump's win, but a Scottish goat who was put up to this got it wrong, so Hillary Clinton <laughs> would win. However, the goat did predict a victory for the, the Leave vote in the Brexit referendum. So, you know, animals have got about as good uh, a record as a lot of commentators. We should get one on the show. That would be... <laughs> yeah, I think they could do well. Wasn't there an American magazine at some point, Michael? I think it might have been Spy that used to run a, 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 a stock-picking column called Beat the Chimp. The idea was that actual stockbrokers would go up against a, an actual <laughs> monkey picking stocks out of a hat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah exactly. exactly. I, I, or if you... If you sit a monkey at a typewriter it will come up with war and peace in the end yeah. but you've probably got to wait a thousand years yes um to, to return to, to to slightly more uh, a serious analysis of what's going to happen on sunday because it, it is a big deal and uh, jonathan should uh, vladimir Zelensky, who is an actual comedian we yeah. cannot overstate that enough be elected president of ukraine how big a wild card is that well, I don't, I, as far as I know, and Michael probably has followed this more closely than I, uh, we don't know how he would uh, fall, flop, or whatever the right word is, uh, or how far that Putin uh, would use it as an occasion to go back to where we were talking about earlier in Venezuela to send in the men in the little men in green uniforms. Who, who are, of course, not Russian. We can, who are not no, Russian, we, who are no, Ukrainian. In, no, in, in the Donbass, if you meet a guy named Sergei, no, <laughs> definitely, no, no, no. Very, very definitely not <laughs> Russian. Uh, that, that, that moment of clarity does bring us to the end of today's show. Michael Goldfarb and Jonathan Fenby, thanks for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's The Urbanist. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London, obviously your host for that as well. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. Music